probably December, and I began to feel like there would be a season where the Lord would want us to devote some attention to the issue of spiritual warfare. And, and that, you know, December was not the season where we were feeling the weight of so much by way of hindrances and obstacles and opposition in our lives and in the church and in many of your lives, in families, in individual situations. These last few months have been an unusual season of extraordinary opposition. And in, a, in an interesting way, as we're going to look today, there's, there's a place where I think God is moving us into a new place. I think that's going to happen as we move into the building, not just as a matter of being in a building, but as the economy of God for us as a church. I think there's, there's years that are coming for us of reaping harvest in a way that's perhaps different than what we've experienced before. Uh, I believe we're on the, the ventures of church planting uh, is beginning to be more of an agenda for us in the, in the next couple of years. We hope to, to move out into that direction as well. And so I believe there's, there's some elements here where we are sort of moving in to take possession, if you will, of some things that God has desired to accomplish in our midst. And the passage we're going to look at today is going to highlight an element of spiritual warfare that if that's what really God has called you to do, and I think in, in many ways, I think you could categorize moving in to take possession of the promises of God is the script that every believer follows. It really is. If you're a newborn Christian, God has promises for you that that he wants you to move in and take possession of those things. Not just have them as concepts in somebody else's life, but have them in yours. If you're married, then God has promises in your married context that he wants you to inherit and possess and enjoy and walk in. So whatever it is that God's called you to do in your life, there's an element that God's called you to it. But now there's a matter of, of laying hold of it and taking possession of it. And so I've titled this, this series, Learning to Fight, Insights on Possessing Promises. Now, let me, let me start with a question for us. Why does the Christian life contain so much that's not easy? You know, I'd love to stand up here today and say, listen, you know, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you come to him, just all your cares will go away. Life will just become a skip in the park. How many Christians have, would say, are you talking about Christianity? Because that, that hasn't been my experience. There's an element of difficulty in the Christian life. Now, let me just say this. There's an element of difficulty in every life. One of them ends happy. The other one ends in judgment. So, you know, there's, there's some elements of the Christian life that difficult or not difficult. These are the words of life. But there is an honest confession that there are aspects of Christianity that are not easy. Walking this out, honestly, is not always the easiest thing. I mean, if you just were to sift through those little categories I just threw at you there in your outline. Things like attitudes, joy, peace, hope, thankfulness. Now, why are those sorts of attitudes, why are they elusive sometimes? Why are they hard to hold? It's like they squirt through our hands. We have joy for a moment and boom, out it goes. And we have peace for a season and we try to grip it and it takes off again. And thankfulness. How many of you guys are just, just every day, you just wake up, Lord, thank you. for, And you just list every day, right? Just full of joy and gratitude. I don't know we're supposed to sound that way. But in reality, 
You don't always, do you? As a matter of fact, cultivating those, those that's difficult to do. Relationships in our lives. Relationships can be very, very difficult. Not easy. Right? We start off, we have, you know, we have a wedding today and most weddings start, you know, there's, there's singing, there's smiles, there's vows, you know, two are becoming one. Oh, and there's decorations and you sing sort of that, what's that old, like 60s, he's now to be among you. Oh, it sounds so great. How many of you guys who've been married for a while feel like two becoming one looks more like a steel mill? You ever look inside of a steel mill? There's lots of heat, there's dirt, you're sweating, there's sparks flying everywhere. Like a rainbow of sparks are flying off things, and two are becoming one. Yeah, just husbands and wives and dynamics of me man, you woman, that's you know, just don't easily oh come together real well. You know, difference in temperaments. Why is it that? The Lord just arranges for people not to have the same temperament when they get married. You know, you don't kind of notice this until after you're married completely. It's like, I use this side of the brain and you use that one. So every one of your first thoughts is never my first thought. And you just have to kind of work at that aspect of being married. You got married couples you're identifying with this? No, I'm so glad I'm, my wife and I are alone in that category. We'll come and see you for counseling from now on. Um, parenting aspects. You know, I mean, just the, uh, I was just talking with the Crumhorns this morning. You know, they have, they have brought a new little baby into their home, um, family situation that they're caring for a little child. And, you know, it, it's just, it, it starts off looking like a Gerber commercial, but it doesn't stay that way. You know, it's like they're just so cute and cuddly. And, and then it kind of gives way to terrible twos. And strong-willed children. Who's writing these books out there, right? Strong-willed child and, and the teenage years. It, it's challenging to pull this off. In this room is the people facing all kinds of challenges financially, right? It's just a battle to get to the end of the month and for my wants to match up with the supply line. Every month, you know, just battling through where we can push the envelope to want more and rein that in. It's not easy to walk through just everyday experiences. And then everybody's going to have a whole list of personal issues that they're facing. Temperament, personality, dynamics, just, you know, issues of insecurity. You want to do things in your life, but you, you know, there's insecurity or there's weight issues or there's laziness issues that tend to pop up. And, and they're just not easy to overcome. You, know, you just can't read a book. I mean, y'all have read a book on dieting and never, ever had a problem with your weight again, right? All it took was just, you just needed the right information, right? You read the book and you've never, ever battled with your weight again. Isn't that the way your experience has been? No. That's not the way it is. It's difficult. And, then, and, and I'm just talking the realm of human existence. What about when you begin to operate in the kingdom of God? Right? The kingdom of God on this earth with this great agenda Let's see, you, you can do all the things we just kind of said there. And if you, if you don't live a life of evangelism, where the message and truth of the gospel is coming out of our lives and into other lives, well then, you know, quite honestly, you can hop and skip around all you want and have a great marriage, manage your finances well, and, and manage your weight and not be lazy. But if you haven't done any evangelism, you've failed. Quite honestly. You've failed as a believer. But why is that doing evangelism is so hard, isn't it? 
Isn't it just easy for you to share your faith with anybody and everybody? Isn't that just the easiest thing you've ever done? Just to strike up conversation and to bring the gospel into other people's lives. Just easy, right? And then them responding, isn't that just the easiest thing? Don't you notice that everybody who hears the gospel, doesn't it just make sense? And when you share it with them, immediately the light goes on and they say yes, right? No. There's a lot of things about Christianity that just are not easy. And I'm a little concerned that, that we don't view life correctly. Therefore, we don't have an explanation as to why is this hard? Why are there aspects of, of the life we're called to hard? Look at this thought by John Piper, his article on prayer. And one of the things I want to provoke us to do today is, is to a deeper pursuit and life of prayer. So this is sprinkled with elements of prayer, as Jeff mentioned, our emphasis in that category, which really is going to run from now until we're in the building. Uh, we're going to raise up and ask for folks. We want every day, we want people praying every day. We want to cover the purposes of God in our midst every day in prayer uh, because we believe we need it. We're in a heightened sense. This is, this is amber alert. Is that kind of like a serious thing? Amber alert, orange, whatever the color might, might need. Raising the alert level. John Piper says, The needs in your own life and in your family and in this church and other churches and in the cause of world missions and in our culture at large are huge and desperate. In many cases, heaven and hell hang in the balance. Faith or unbelief. Life and death. Remember Paul's grief and anguish for his perishing kinsmen in Romans 9-2? And remember that in Romans 10.1, he prays for them earnestly. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Salvation hangs in the balance when we pray. Underline this. You will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You really, none of us really will have much of a prayer life in the category of biblical praying if we lose sight of the idea that that life is war. Life is not peacetime. Life is not just the things that we see in the natural. Life is not just living in America in the 21st century. Life is war. You know, it's almost a difference between I don't know if you guys have caught the Chronicles of Narnia, the latest Narnia movie. Um, but if you saw the, the other one or read any C.S. Lewis books, you know that this is a, this is a story about this group of this, these children in a family who live in London. But there is a, another realm of their lives in a land called Narnia. And the movie opens with the children just going through everyday normal life in London I think they're waiting to catch the subway to go to school. And just normally interacting with the way in which life is. Like every other person on the planet, they're going to school, they're going about their business. But they are aware of this other existence. And they get whisked away in the beginning of the movie into the land of Narnia. In the land of Narnia, they are very different people. They are kings and queens in the land of Narnia. And they have a completely different skill set they wield swords, they are archers, they ride horses, they command people and they direct activity and military activity. It's a completely different world. Same people, 
living in two different worlds. And you know, in some ways, that, that sort of describes Christianity. In one aspect, you and I live in a very natural setting. We breathe, we go to work, we pay bills, we drive in cars, we operate in physical space, we live our lives for a certain period of time here upon earth, just like everybody else. But there's a reality to our lives that transcends this setting. And it's sort of like the difference between living in London and living in Narnia. And I would want to ask us, from what perspective do you and I live our lives? We live it from a London perspective or from a Narnia perspective. See, in Narnia, these children are caught up into this war in this setting between forces of evil and forces of good. And they are caught up into Aslan's cause and pursuing his cause. How do you you see your life? See, I, I wonder when you come into a church setting and we have elements of spirituality in our lives... Is is that shelf material? Is that just kind of something that sits up on a shelf? As a matter of fact, if you take it a little bit too seriously, it gets a little spooky and weird. So we tend to just sort of really be very natural-minded in our thinking and sort of incorporate little bits and pieces of spirituality into our lives, almost almost like eyedropper falls here and there to where we can benefit from it. But when you read the Bible, you, you get a drastic view that we are living in a totally different land in the way in which this world is aware of how this world functions. Just a couple of passages. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is a realm of the unseen that is going to last forever. The the things that you and I see, they're just temporary. You can be intimidated by them all you want, but they will be gone tomorrow or the day after that or shortly. Ephesians 6, Paul spoke to the Ephesians and he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if you, you take that verse serious today. Now, for Paul, I think there was a little bit of room to say that. In our day and age of technology and the way in which people think about things and the allegorizing of the Bible, you could sound like a kook if you actually believe what that verse just said. But what if it is true? What if the reality of our lives is not so much about the people aspect and the natural components, the time frames and things you can see and touch with your hands? What if the real steering currents of the world that you and I are a part of is spiritual in nature? What if that's the truth? Well, then we really don't wrestle so much about with the things we can touch as much as the things that we cannot see. But yet, isn't it interesting the implication of that verse is we actually do wrestle but we don't wrestle in natural ways. We wrestle in supernatural ways. Look at this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. It says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's just listed off issues, primarily issues of materialism and money, temporary dynamics of life. Flee those things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight 
the good fight of the faith, Timothy. Fight the fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Interesting two concepts here. Timothy, fight and take hold of something. So this is a posture that, that may not be in the front of our minds enough. The posture of the call to fight and take hold. So sometimes this surprises us because in our, in our theology, some of, some of the theology of the Bible almost sounds like it's an automatic thing. Like it's happening by itself and it doesn't require any participation on our part. When you look at what the cross accomplished... And I, my death in Christ occurred, and, and I did nothing to make it happen. I didn't participate in it. The justification and the righteousness that's been given to me were done by God before I ever had a clue as to how to ask Him to be involved and still trying to figure that out in some ways. God did it. It was automatically given into my life. But listen, not everything in the Christian life is like that. And you make a mistake to think that it is. Now, here's an interesting thing Paul says to Timothy. He talks about this eternal life which you were called. See, the calling of God has happened. God did that. God has called you into this thing. You are a Christian because God called you to be a Christian. You're not a Christian here today because you figured this thing out. You got smart one day. You analyzed enough world religions. and You made a decision. You weighed Christianity in the balance. You used your brain. And you knocked on God's door. And you said, hey, God, I'm picking you today. That's not how anybody here became a Christian. You became a Christian because God called you. And by his mercy prevailed upon my ignorance and my resistance and my rebellion. And in his grace inclined my heart to say yes to the call. But then Paul turns around and says, Timothy, take hold of the eternal life. Oh, the eternal life is yours. Yes, it's yours. And this is the, 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 the distinguishing mark of Christians laying hold of the promises, possessing the promises, actually dwelling in and experiencing and appropriating what is already yours. So you don't, you don't, you don't work before God to get God to do. God has done. But yet in God's doing, God turns around and says, Timothy, fight. Fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Now, I read the Bible. Those, vo- those words have implications to them. If Timothy's being told to fight, it tells me he can also not fight. If Timothy's being told to take hold of the eternal life, then it also implies that he can leave that on the side and not take hold of it. Was he still called? Well, I think there's dimensions here where God still does what God does. But the possessing of it... The experiencing of it. See, I think this is where the warfare takes place. Because we'll find as we study through this a little bit, warfare primarily is a warfare for your faith. That's where the battle lines are drawn. It's a battle for what are you going to believe. Obviously for eternal life, but then day-to-day maintenance of living. Every day I fight a battle for faith. What am I going to believe about this circumstance, about that event? about God being involved in this situation right now. God, what do I believe about that? And the battle lines are drawn and influencing my faith. But there are non-automatic features here that we are called to fight for. Interesting, J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor in England in the 1800s, 
And listen to what he writes here, because I think it's, it's very appropriate today, as usually his comments are. He says, the first thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is a fight. The warfare I speak of is the spiritual warfare. It is the fight which everyone who would be saved must fight about his soul. This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing. And yet, it is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. The true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He's not meant to live a life of religious ease, indolence, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven. If the Bible is the rule of his faith and practice, he will find his course laid down very plainly in this matter. He must fight. All of us must fight. This is why we're really calling this series Learning to Fight. If we must fight, how do we fight? What are the categories into which we must fight? But today, I just want to to see that in God's economy, every Christian must learn to fight. Don't assume that we know how to fight. Don't assume that we even were aware that there was a fight to be fought. It is finished, was the words that Jesus uttered at the cross. It's finished. But yet in the New Testament, Timothy is still told, Timothy, fight the fight. So what Jesus finished is not referring to this, although it is the most influential reason why we fight. In the heavenlies, the war is won. But in our walking these things out, we still must fight. So question, what, what, are, what are we preparing ourselves for? In your Christian experience, in your pursuit, when you read the Bible, when you interact with this information, I greatly encourage you again. You know, we provide outlines uh, for reasons to help you study, to help you be a disciple. Disciples are learners. Uh, you should be trafficking through these quotes. There will be elements of them that leapt out at, leap out at you in a way, the way they leaped out at me differently perhaps. There are passages here that you didn't necessarily know that the Bible taught that. You need to go back and revisit these things. You need to be taking notes in the margins of these notes. And sometime this week, you need to go back and revisit these issues. Otherwise, we're never going to grow in this stuff. It's never enough to come into a meeting and just hear it one time. I need to get with God and receive this. But, but what are we preparing our Christian life for? Kind of, are we preparing to live in London? Are we preparing to live in Narnia? Training yourself to wield a sword, shoot a bow, ride a horse, face opponents that want to take your life, opposition that seeks to destroy you and those around you that you love, those that you've never met but that you will meet, that, that God will give you a heart to protect and to care for, and to lead. Are we preparing ourselves for that? Are we preparing ourselves to live in 21st century America? I just, I just want some Bible verses that tell me how to pay the bills, and how to get a good job, how to get along with people, how to win friends and influence people, whatever it is, whatever popular book is out there. I just want to know how to do a little better version of what the world does every day of their life when they get up and they go live their life. I just want to be able to have one step better than they got. Living for the same exact things. Teach me some technique about how I put in three coins of faith and get this. What everybody else wants, 
You understand that is so foolish when you put yourself in the realm of there's people who live in London and then there's a real world of Narnia, if you will. It's a real world. And oh, oh, I want to I want to learn to ride the subway better. I want to know how to get in line faster. Really, that's the only thing you're concerned about. That's where you want to take your Christianity. That's what you want to be prepared to do. Well, then we are we are in sad shape. We have misdiagnosed the reality of our lives. There's a much deeper reality here of which we must learn to fight. Turn to Judges chapter 3. Let me give you a little bit of some background here. Judges, probably a book that not too many folks read. Um, they probably run out of gas. You know, you start Genesis, you're raging, you go through the patriarchs, you get to Exodus, and then Leviticus shuts everybody down. And you just kind of don't cross the tripwire after that. And, and then when you read through Numbers and Deuteronomy, you get confused because you thought, haven't I read all this already? This is all the same stuff again. And, and so maybe you make it to Joshua. But I don't know. Maybe, you know, if you're on those yearly Bible reading programs, you run out of gas by the time you get to Judges. Well, interesting thing is when we get to Judges, uh, Judges is the existence of the people of God who are now in the promised land. They're in the promised land. Right now, now, if you've been in Christianity for a while, you've heard many things preached. The Old Testament really is uh, shadows. It's, it's, it's wall paintings, if you will, of the New Testament life, of what we should be expecting. So there's all kinds of teaching that are in these realms um, of everything. From what, what happened in Exodus here, where the people of God are enslaved and they're in bondage and God comes and delivers them. So they come out of this bondage to sin, right? And so you liken that into the New Testament, and some people liken that to, well, that's, that's salvation. That's the freedom from the tyranny of sin controlling our lives. Egypt is that picture of the realm of darkness controlling humanity. And then salvation comes after that. Well, some folks have likened, well, you know, and then they pass through the wilderness, and then they eventually they, they cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. Well, what do all those things mean? Well, interesting, I'm going to let you follow along Charles Spurgeon's quote here about what he says about that whole picture of entering into Canaan, the promised land. He says, we frequently use Canaan as a type of heaven, and the Jordan through which Israel passed is a symbol of death. Now, not everybody does this, and I wouldn't agree with it, and he doesn't either, but some folks maybe have been exposed to that idea. This is thoroughly poetical and may be made exceedingly instructive, but it is not quite accurate. If the New Testament is to, be expound, is to expound the old then there is another lesson to be learned from the land which flowed with milk and honey. We that have believed do enter into rest. That is to say, all believers in Christ have crossed the Jordan and have come into the promised rest. Right? Do you remember, do you remember the time issues here? Right? Interesting, when you read the Bible, sometimes you start thinking that the length of the book means length of time. And, and that's a big mistake. Because when you start from the middle of Exodus, actually, you know, Exodus 3 quickly gives way to Exodus 12. They're on their way out of Egypt. And from Exodus 12 all the way through the end of Deuteronomy, right? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're only talking Moses' lifespan. You're only talking 40 years or so in that little realm there. And then you jump into the book of Joshua where they actually, Deuteronomy, if you want to know why Deuteronomy is in the Bible, it's the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. It's God gave the law at Sinai. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they've come back to the edge of the Jordan River. Right on the other side of the Jordan River is the promised land that God had told his people, this is your inheritance. 
And so when they get to the river, Moses stops and says, okay, we're going to review the law again. That's why when you read Deuteronomy, you sit in there, scratch your head and go, didn't I read this already? Did we go through all this before? Yeah, well, they're giving it again because it's been 40 years. And now we're going to go into the promised land. We're going to cross the Jordan and go in. Well, Joshua crosses the Jordan, goes in. It's like a blitzkrieg. Joshua's the great commander. They go in and they start taking possession of the land. They fight battle after battle and victory after victory. And they begin to portion out the land and the tribes spread out into the land of the promise. There's one problem. They haven't completely run all the people out of the land. Judges is about their life in the land when they haven't run all the enemies out. And we're going to see a little bit about that today. But that's where we are in the time frame here. So you have 40 years and the Pentateuch from, from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy. You have about 20 years of Joshua. And they're going to have almost 300 years of the book of Judges. So that's why when you read books, you know, there could be a lot of time in this one book or it could be a little bit of time with a lot of information in it. You go back to Mr. Spurgeon. He says... All believers in Christ have crossed the Jordan and have come into the promised rest. The covenant is fulfilled to them already in a great measure. They are living under Messiah's sway within the bounds of his kingdom. And every precious thing which God promised them is theirs. That's a very important theological concept. They dwell in the land which the Lord thinketh upon. Thy land, O Emmanuel. This condition of exalted privilege is not a state of undisturbed repose. On the contrary, he wars a constant warfare, wrestling with spiritual wickedness. The Canaanite is in possession and the Canaanite is to be driven out. Our natural tendencies and corruptions, our sinful habits and lustings and warpings and bending of our spirit towards evil, all this has to be overcome. And we shall not possess the land so as to enjoy undivided tranquility until sin is utterly exterminated. Now, I think the utterly exterminated won't happen in this life. But there's a reality that to the degree that sin controls our lives, the promises of God do not. And into this land has come the people of God. And this is where I agree with Mr. Spurgeon that the promised land is not a picture of heaven. Because in heaven, there are, there's nobody to run out of heaven. There's no enemies in the land. Sin is no longer dwelling in our members. It is face to face with God, unhindered. There's no friction of the world. There's no course of this age. There's no renewing the mind. There's no taking thoughts captive. None of that is in heaven. There's no tears. There's no suffering. There's no pain. But in the promised land that Judges describes for us, all those things are present. So I think actually when you cross the Jordan... You have crossed into the realm of sanctification is where you are now. You, you are in the kingdom of God. You belong to the king. The promises of God have been given to you. Now, Timothy, take hold of them. Oh, and when you go to do that, there will be this enemy and that enemy and that enemy who will rise up against you to oppose you taking hold of the promises of God in your life. Now, this is where I think Christianity loses its wheels today. Because, you know, we live in a very easy age. 
like a lot of easy things. We like automatic things. We, we like things to be done for us. We like to be able to buy people to do stuff for us. But when you come to a Christianity, that when you go to do something, it's going to be opposed. It's not going to be easy because there are usurpers in the land. This land of promise that God has given you promises. And just think throughout the categories of your life. God has given you promises in all categories of your life. Your personal existence, your walk with him, your battles with sin in your own heart and your life, your relationship with other people, your marriage, your parenting, your success, and your call to have a career. All those aspects, God has made promises to you. And as soon as you put your foot in the realm of those promises, enemies will come up out of the ground against you. Because in this land, you will be opposed. And if taking hold of the promises of God does not include fighting for them, you're going to have a hard time possessing the promises of God. Because you get knocked over too easily. I think I told the ladies at the retreat last weekend, you know, there's, there's a realm of Christianity that, that almost is like if you're going to be a boxer, I think one of the first things that they train boxers to do is not how to throw a punch, but how to take one. How to, how to move just enough to get it off of you. How to defend yourself, how to use your hands and your body. Because if you can't take a punch, but you throw a mean one, it's going to be a brief fight. Because the other guy can take your punch. But when he throws his punch at you, the fight's going to be over. You can't take a fight. So as Christians, being able to fight means you're going to be opposed. This is not going to be easy. There will be enemies in the land. But laying hold of the promises of God means fighting. Now, interesting, let's look in Judges chapter 3. Interesting what the Lord says about them learning to fight in this land. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations and these are the the five lords who were left in the land of promise so that when the people of God live there and dwell there, God, this verse says, God has left those enemies in the land for a reason. Now, God, why would you do that? Why, are, why is there opposition in the land of promise? Why is there difficulty for people of God trying to lay hold of the promises of God? Why, Lord, would you leave enemies in the land? Well, it's interesting that he speaks of the need for them to know war. The people of God need to know how to fight. And so God leaves opposition there. And he describes a generation here. He says, a generation that didn't know war. You back up into chapter 2 and verse 10. This is right after Joshua has died, right? We come out of the book of Joshua. Joshua's brought the people into the land. They've taken possession of the land, but there's still enemies that are in the land. Joshua dies, and then a generation comes after him. Listen to how that generation is described. Verse 10, and all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. Joshua and his generation now have gone to be with the Lord. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
Isn't that interesting? You had just had these people that come out of the Exodus. They've seen God rescue them out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness so one generation can die off. A younger generation replaces them. The generation of Joshua dies off. And the Bible says the generation that came after them did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done. Now, what do you think that means? Because I, it's, it's, I think it's a bit of an oversight just to read that verse and say, well, you know, they just didn't know God. They didn't know anything about him. They didn't know who he was. You know, they just, here they are. They're, they're in this land and they're wondering, how did we get here? You know, um, who do we believe in? Who is God? They'd never heard anything about God, right? Is, is that what you think that verse means? I hardly believe that. These, these people knew how they got here. They still celebrated things like Passover and activities that acknowledged God. I think what you have here is not a, not a generation that didn't know anything about God, but a generation that had not experienced God for themselves. That's why God said, you know, you know what will help you experience me? War. Having to fight. That will help you to experience me. See, this, this is an act. You can see this. Well, God, was this, is this unkind for God to leave enemies in the land? No. No, God knew if, if you guys don't ever get in over your head, you won't look to me. If you can manage this thing on your own, you won't look to me. You look to your own ways, your own activities, your own abilities, and God becomes a forgotten component. See, it's not until you get desperate that you call out to God. So God left desperation in the land. He left people who would rise up against the people of God and give them a little yellow streak up their back and send them running. And that's who this generation was. It's interesting, the solution of God for teaching us to war. John Wesley says, teach them war. That by the neighborhood of such warlike enemies, they might be purged from sloth and security and oblige them to inure themselves to martial exercises, to stand continually upon their guard, and consequently to keep close to that God whose assistance they had so great and constant need of. So, you know, listen, guys, just think about your prayer life right now. How, how much of your prayer life is spent pleading with God to remove all sources of discomfort and inconvenience in your life? Right? I mean, isn't that what you ask for? God, this has come up. Oh, Lord, this will delay that. That could be painful. I don't want to go through that. That relationship could be difficult. Oh, God, just take away all forms of me needing you. Please, Lord, I don't want to need you. Isn't that what we're praying for? God, make my life so easy that any idiot could pull it off, including me, and, and I wouldn't really need to wait on your wisdom or your power. I definitely don't want to have to figure out how do I get plugged into your power, God. Can you just keep, make my life so natural and so easy that I could do it, even a caveman could do it, I don't know, use a commercial something. Isn't that what we're praying for most of the time? And we bump into the economy of God. We don't realize what God has done is he's left some of these things in our lives on purpose. Because my faith needs to learn to fight. Not just to barely breathe and exist. But to fight. Because if you don't fight, you'll never lay hold of the promises of God. See, the Bible says weird things like strive to enter into the rest of God. <laughs> what do you mean? Rest and strive all in the same sentence? When I'm thinking of resting, I'm thinking of hammock, cool breeze, 
Ocean waves in the background. I'm resting. Who's striving? Sipping something on the beach. No, in the economy of God, they're striving to enter into the rest. The promises of God. This is why so much of the church doesn't dwell in the goodness of God, in the promises of God, in the power of God. Because we're, we're desperately praying for all the things that God uses in our lives to go away. That's where we've turned our prayer attention to. Matthew Henry says, Israel was a figure of the church, militant, that must fight its way to, tri- to a triumphant state. The soldiers of Christ must endure hardness. Corruption is therefore left remaining in the hearts even of good Christians, that they may learn war, may keep on the whole armor of God and stand continually upon their guard. Do you remember when Paul prayed kind of the way we pray? Lord, take this thorn away three times. You know, it wasn't enough that he got some kind of a don't pray that way, Paul. And he prayed again. Second time, don't pray that way, Paul. Third time, finally, he gets a revelation. It is this very condition that weakens me, that that creates a conduit for the power of God to be made known in my life. And when Paul gets that revelation and God says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, stop asking for the difficulty to go away. Embrace my grace in that place with all of its difficulties so that my power can be made known in your life. When Paul gets that revelation, to his credit, he stops praying that way and says, I will all the more greatly rejoice in my weaknesses that the power of God may be known in my life. So I think we're in need to some degree of understanding battles and war so that we can actually pray correctly in our lives. Now, I want you to see something interesting here, because there is an element here of God has left the enemies in the land. But they are also there because of human irresponsibility as well. This is a wonderful theological concept. It's going to create quite a tension. But the good thing is they're both here and they're both neighbors. And they're within the first three chapters of Judges. Because one would ask, if you just read chapter three, how did the enemies get in the land of the people of God's lives? In chapter three, you'd say, well, God, God did that. He just said why he did it too. But here's the interesting thing. And here's the realm in which we dwell in. They did get there by God. But they also got there by human irresponsibility. Sin opened the door for these enemies to be in the land with the people of God. And you must let both of those exist together at the same time. You'll torture yourself by choosing really either one or the other. Because they are both true exactly at the same time, right? Then back up in the Judges chapter 1. Let's just catch a quick highlight reel here of, of what happened in Judges here as this generation after Joshua is going to possess the land now that Joshua has parceled out to all the tribes. Judges 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. That's good. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Go ahead, Judah. The battle is won. Go take possession. Now, they're going to have to go fight, but God is going to go fight with them. Ultimately, the victory belongs to God. Judah does a great job there for a while, but if you skip down to verse 19, watch what happens here. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking, 
natural-minded, right? I'm not living in Narnia at this moment. Well, they have the advantage. They have iron chariots. But then immediately my mind says, what about, the Lord just told Judah, I will give them into your hands. Was, did God have a hard time with iron chariots? Now, God can handle a lot, but just don't bring iron chariots against him. I mean, that doesn't seem to fit either. So we learn something about the opposition that's there through them. You read a little bit further. Verse 21, the people of Benjamin. They did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Yet God told them, drive them out, and they did not. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. I want you to take some notes here. I'm just hitting a few examples. And we're going to come back and learn something from these guys in just a moment. Chapter 1, verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Now what you find is all the tribes for some reason, failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. That was the instruction of God. Drive them out. Destroy them completely. No matter how you feel about that, uh, the Bible actually says that that the the dwelling in the promised land was both the promises of God being realized in the people of God's life, and it was also the judgment of God being visited upon the people of the land. So, again, you have this picture of God. Don't choose to fall in love with one image of God at the expense of another. You have the righteous judgment of God right alongside the mercy of God. You have people who don't deserve to be dwelling in the land, the people of God. They don't deserve it either. But they're going to receive the mercy of God and get to dwell in land without judgment. But the people who were there, who were wicked and sinful, God brings judgment upon them and prescribes complete destruction for the people who dwell there. So they were instructed to go in and dispossess these people, get rid of everybody who lives there, run them off, drive them out, and destroy. But they don't do that. And so when we get to chapter 3 and find out that there's enemies in the land, we find out God has sovereignly arranged for that. However, chapter 1 teaches us that they didn't do their job. God called them to do something, and they failed. Listen, God's sovereignty is always managing the aspects of sinful activity of man. Don't ever think that you can sin your way out of the sovereignty of God. Like, oh, well, man sins so bad, you know, even God can't do anything with that. Listen, the, this whole Bible is God sovereignly ruling over sin. Sin is everywhere in here. It's constantly motivating the people of God to do the wrong thing, filling us with unbelief, challenging God, being rebellious and idolatrous, and God still is accomplishing his purpose. So you have this wonderful picture here of failure on man's part and sovereignty on God's part that brings us. But I, I want to traffic in a couple of these thoughts for a moment. Reasons that are given here for remaining opposition. We could kind of say it for us. Why we do not expel the enemies in our lives. Why didn't these guys expel these enemies? They had reasons. Each of the tribes had some reasons as to why they didn't. First one that came across was the chariots of iron. Judah encountered a people who had chariots of iron. Now, in that day and age, and I think for us to translate this into our own setting, we're not, we're not afraid today of chariots of iron. These were extraordinary and intimidating 
circumstances. See, a chariot of iron in that day would have been a, a piece of weaponry that was uncommon. The Israelites didn't have it. You know, you, you were foot soldiers. You just lined up and you walked in the battle. Well, a chariot of iron was this bulky, strong instrument that was driven by horses, could go probably 20 to 25 miles an hour, and poking off the side of it were these big blades, scythes blades. Remember those, those things you reap crops with? Big, long blades were poking off the sides of it, and then it had the wheels that had the, the razors on them. You remember Ben-Hur and those kind of movies? They had the wheels thing that were happening. So you start driving a bunch of chariots at 25 miles an hour into a bunch of foot soldiers. And what do you have on your hands? A bloodbath. These guys are going to just be mauled everywhere. So anybody who had iron chariots, well, you talk about argue with God. God, wait, God, you called us to do what? This is intimidating. Now, listen, there's nobody here today who woke up today concerned about actual iron chariots. You didn't think, if I get out of the car at church, iron chariots, I could be cut to pieces. You know, you weren't thinking that today. But you're scared to death of something, aren't you? I mean, you've got some kind of an iron chariot in your life that you're just afraid of. Circumstances, relationships, deficiency in you, something in your life that intimidates you about obeying God. Interesting, Charles Spurgeon says, They could not conquer the chariots of iron because, first, they did not try. The Hebrew does not say that they could not drive them out. What the Hebrew says is that they did not drive them out. Some things we cannot do because we never make the attempt. I wish we had among Christian workers the spirit of the Suffolk lad who was brought up in court to be examined by an overbearing lawyer. The lawyer roughly said to him, Hodge, can you read Greek? I don't know, sir, he said. Well, fetch a Greek book. And the lawyer and said the lawyer, and showing the lad a passage, he said to him, Can you read that? No. Then why did you not say that you could not? Because I never say I cannot do a thing till I have tried it. <laughs> if that spirit were in Christian people, we should achieve great things. But we set down such and such a thing as manifestly beyond our power and silently we whisper to ourselves, therefore, beyond God's power. And so we let it alone. No chariots of iron will be driven out if we dare not make the attempt. See, what's interesting in this whole chariots of iron thing, if you go back in Joshua chapter 17, God specifically says this to Joseph. The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. This is what Joseph says to God. God says, you shall drive out the Canaanites Though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. It's not as though chariots of iron had never been discussed. Ah, oh, chariots of iron. No game plan for that. God already said, you're going to encounter chariots of iron, and you will drive them out regardless. And yet they did not. What about the tribes like Benjamin and Ephraim and Asher? The Bible says they just didn't. They just simply did not drive out those who were in the land. You know, for whatever reason, we just, you know... Just didn't get around to it. Wasn't a priority. Um, a little bit too risky. Not on the top list of priority of things to do. They got to a place where they were okay. You know, there's less of them living in the land. We'll just we'll just leave them alone. They're leaving us alone. We'll just leave them alone. They just simply didn't do it. God had said do it, but they simply didn't do it. And we might guess at some reasons. I, I like Spurgeon's reasons. He says, I suspect. They did not drive them out because they were idle. If cavalry 
were to be dealt with, Judah must bestir himself. If chariots of iron were to be defeated, they must enter upon an arduous campaign. And so taking counsel of their fears and their idleness, they said, let us not venture on the conflict. There are many things that Christ's church is unable to do because it is too lazy. Idleness refuses to sound the trumpet for the battle. And the fight never comes on. And therefore, the enemy is not driven out. Listen, at some point, I am, I'm going to do a series on laziness, lying, and indwelling in habitual sin at some point. But laziness, I can't even begin to imagine how many of our lives are sheerly being so limited by laziness. Oh, nothing dramatic, nothing some Apollyon meets us on the road and demonic opposition. Just laziness. I just don't feel like. You want to know what, the, what I believe is the number one category of laziness in the Christian life? Thinking. I think making yourself think correctly is the number one category of laziness in the Christian life. Because actually, I don't think there's anything you do that's more difficult is forcing yourself to abandon lies and not dwell on uh, untruth and to think and renew your mind. I think it's the hardest thing any Christian does. I also think it's the most lazy category for most Christians. Listen, if you're here and you're battling, we said earlier about attitudes like joy. Remember John Piper wrote the book, When I Don't Desire God, and he subtitled it, uh, The Fight for Joy, I think was a subtitle. It's a fight. Listen, you're not a joyful person sort of a melancholy person, sort of given to negativity in your life, sort of under a cloud a lot of the time. Uh, Listen, I I, I don't think that is completely free from laziness. Because you can, you know, having joy sometimes, it takes some effort. It takes some energy to believe the truth and to believe something good about my life, and to believe about God a certain thing that causes me to see my life through a different lens, that takes a little effort on my part. I'm not sure I want to do it. It just comes easier for me just to dwell on the negative and wait for the next set of bad news and to get somebody else around me who'll go along with me. Complain and have them one-up me. Got any friends like that? Oh, you you think you got it bad. Let me tell you what happened to me on the way here. And then the person next to me, huh, you think that's bad? And we just love that, don't we? It's laziness. It's mental laziness. Some of us, you know, some of us will exist in relational dynamics of our life. We've got marriages that are in the same condition. Ten years later, they're still in the same stinky, unmaintained, hadn't grown, still speak to each other the same way. Don't know how to encourage. Won't lay down our lives. What is that? Lack of information? Not around here it ain't. What is it? It's laziness. See, what comes natural to me is just to sit. Do that when I come home. That just comes natural to me. Talk to my wife? No, it doesn't come natural. That's work. I'd have to even think of something to do that. Why don't you do that? Because I'm lazy. That's why. Listen, don't get grandiose. You don't need some great theology here. Some things just need to get fixed by facing the fact, I don't feel like doing it. You know, wives, you got your categories where you're just lazy. 
Right? You know, deal with your husband, deal with your family, deal with your home a certain way. You just don't like that part of managing the home, do you? just don't like it, so I just don't do it. There's no deep theology here. It's just laziness. Why are there certain enemies in the land of our lives? Because we're just too lazy to run them out. Why has that attitude stayed in my life all these years? Because I'm too stinking lazy to pick up the weapons of God and chop that thing to pieces and say, get out. Get out of the land. Get out of the land. Well, listen, whatever land that thing's occupying, there are promises of God that is keeping you from walking in. There are promises. Listen, you know, I think of married life. There are promises in the realm of marriage that so many of us as Christians never get a chance to explore and appreciate. Because we won't run the enemies out of our lives that are keeping us from it. Fight! Learn to fight! So this is part of Christianity. I didn't know I had to fight. I just thought it just was all automatic. It's not automatic. There are promises for you. It's amazing how we believe these lies about our personality and our temperament. Before we believe the Bible. All right, so you got some enemy in the land. You're some hothead, impatient jerk. Okay, congratulations. Get, get in line with a lot of us. So those are the enemies that dwell in the land. You know, over here they're Gergeshites and Hittites. And they got little names and stuff over here too. Okay, but yours is impatient, arrogant jerk. That's, that's your enemy in the land. So take the weapons of God and cut the thing down and run it out of the land. Oh, but I didn't. Well, why didn't you? Well, I was lazy. How about this one? Manasseh didn't run their enemies out of the land because the enemies persisted in staying. What a novel thought. How about that, huh? This, this to me is, this is a great picture of Christianity facing indwelling sin. Right? You go to confront the sins that are in your life that have kind of been there, they're kind of hanging around in your life for way too long. You go to confront them and they just say, no, I'm not going. You, know, you speak some word, ah, bond you, and you yell at it, and you say all kinds of things, and you read something, and it gets a hold of your mind, and and next day it's still sitting in the chair there. Hey, bring me a beer while you're up, you know. It's like, what are you doing here? Well, I decided I'm staying. What do you mean you decided you're staying? I told you to go. Yeah, I'm, you know, I just didn't feel like I'm staying. I'm staying, all right? Back down, man, I'm staying. And next day, you know, we back down. These guys left enemies in the land because the enemies refused to leave. You know, I don't know how your sin is, but my sin's not like I get up in the morning, there's like a whole set of them volunteering at the door. Yeah, we'd like to leave today. Could you get up? Hey, man, could you get up, maybe do a devotion? Uh, we'd like to get out of here. We'd like to be done with you. I, I don't have any sins in my life volunteering to leave. You know, they're more like children when you try to get them out of a place. You know, they, they, you get to the door and then you get to the car and you realize, I've lost half of them again. They've all gone back in and they're back in there again. Persistent little suckers. What about this last one? This last one catches us. This last one, these guys didn't run them out of the land because they had other ideas about how to make use of them. Manasseh and Zebulon in particular. Instead of running them out, they decided, let's, let's make them forced labor. You know, we, we beat these guys down where there's just a handful of them. We can control these guys. And if we let them stay instead of annihilating them and running them all off, we could get them to do some work for us. We get these guys to be slaves for us. This is a good idea. This works. Well, it, it, the only problem with it is it's not what God told you to do. 
See, God in his wisdom told you how to do it. And you thought, well, you know, I've got a good idea, though. How many of us have good ideas that we just dismiss obedience? Because we got a good idea. Well, this was not a good idea. It was a fatal idea. Because God knew these people are idolaters. And if you let the idolatry stay in your midst, you will be an idolater next. Guarantee it. So this is a mistake all of us should learn from these guys. You cannot put idolatry on a leash and think that you can control it. When you find idolatry in your life, you, you have to kill it. That's what God does with idolatry. He kills it. You can't relocate it. You know, idolatry, well, this thing used to control my life, and now I've just kind of moved it over here. It's still in my life, but it's moved over here. It's not a feature. Right? It's just over here now. Well, when you read Judges, here, you want, to, you want to find out how idolatry behaves on a leash? Look in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil. This is after they've left these enemies in the land. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord. Never thought you'd do that. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So this is, this is what happens when you try and keep idols on a leash. They never stay where you thought they would stay. Over the course of time, they come back, they bring friends, set up shop, they're back in business, they multiply. You thought it would stay small, but now, oops, all of a sudden there's a lot of them now. You hadn't paid attention to it. And they're overrunning the land and their ideas are beginning to control you. In verse 14, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, listen to this, this may help you discern what's going on in your life. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. You know, sometimes we have a hard time interpreting terrible distress. Right? Terrible distress because of the enemies, because what they're doing in my life, because they've come in. Well, it's an interesting place to find yourself when, when God, and I think I said it this way in your outline, when God is for you by being against you. It's not that God's not for his people here. But he is for them by being against them. And they find themselves setting out to do this and setting out to do that. And the hand of God is constantly against them, against them, against them. Why? Because they have abandoned God and they have gone after idols. And when your heart is after idols, God will find himself against you. So sometimes distress can come in your life. Because this says, and they were in terrible distress. God was causing the terrible distress in their lives. Now, this, this whole section here, and I'll try and bring us to a close here. This whole section, is, is, it's an interesting thing to look at. 
Because, you know, a lot of us want to ask this question. We get into a place of terrible distress. Things are falling apart in our lives. And we want to ask, how did we get here? How did I get here? And there's this element of, of self-condemnation that, we, you know, we don't want to answer the question by saying, I got here because of this choice followed by this one, followed by that waywardness, followed by my hardness and my association with these things. That's how I got here. We don't like to answer the question that way. And quite honestly, that's not always the answer to the question. But sometimes it is. Sometimes that is how I am where I am. But at the very same time, I am also there by the sovereign hand of God. Those enemies are in that land because they had reasons to not run them out. But when we get to chapter 3, we find out those enemies are in that land so that that group of people can learn war and can learn to trust God and can get in over their heads and put their faith toward God. God knew that's the condition in which my people will do that. So it is that God sovereignly has you where you are. And yes, you probably had something to do with getting yourself there. Don't, don't try and make it one or the other. You ever find yourself doing that? Listen, I, I hear a lot of folks coming for counseling. They're trying to figure this thing out. See, because if I'm here because God has me here, then I got faith for being here. But if I'm here because I screwed up four times in a row, well, I don't have any faith for being here. Well, can you understand that you are here by both of those? Now, what's important at this moment is not that they sit down and say, oh, why are the enemies here? Why are the enemies here? Oh, they are here. And it's terrible. They're here because we did things wrong. Oh, I'm so condemned. Oh, don't say that around me because I feel so condemned when you say that. You know, that's not the place to go with this. The place to go is for you simply to appreciate there are enemies in the land. Get up and fight, period. Stop trying to figure out something beyond that. Are there enemies in the land? Yes. Did they get there by your input? Probably. At least some of them. Did they get there because God sovereignly has put them there? Yes, absolutely. What are you supposed to do with that? Timothy, fight. Take hold of the promises of God. Fight. That's what you're supposed to do. So, so don't get paralyzed. Well, I'm not fighting because I'm too busy trying to figure out how did they get here again? Well, that's a big mistake. Because you may never really figure out, well, is it, is it 100% me or, you know, sovereignty is in here somewhere. So what's the percentage here? Was I really, really irresponsible and therefore they're here and I'm living in the land of regret now? Uh, you know, I don't know if you ever get to figure that out. The Bible doesn't go there very well. The Bible simply does explain, well, these guys should have done this and they didn't, but yet God has left the enemies in the land. And the two of those things come together and now fight, which is what we must learn to do. Let me close with this thought. Eric, you can come up. This generation, if you will, and I think for us, the generation of the church that we live in, I don't know if this generation knows war. We are a people who have lived incredibly easy lives in many, many categories. We have technological advances. We have medical advances that touch our lives. We have little creature comforts that traffic in and out of our lives. None of us are starving. We, we live in a land where there's a free society. I mean, to as much as all the problems that America may have, but you find me another country on the planet that's figured out a way to let people be different from each other and live together. I mean, very basically, you don't find that. You go to another country and some group's going to become dominant and they're going to force everybody else into the mold that they're a part of. They'll kill you, 
persecute you, etc. Well, in America, you get to burn the flag and like this group and hate that one. Everybody gets to have their own right to do their own thing. So what incredible liberty that brings into our lives. We're, we're not a people who know war. For Christianity, that's been very, very easy. But yet we're called to fight. You know, an easy church maybe has a hard time fighting. Yeah, I cannot believe the timing of the Lord for us is to learn. You know, God's about to bring us into some things in the next few years. That we're going to have to lay hold of them. We're going to have to fight for those things to occur in this city and in people's lives. And I think the Lord's trying to say, how much fight do you have in you, church? You got fight in you? Ready to fight for the kingdom of God? Listen, if I'm not, if I'm not fighting for the kingdom of God in my own little world, then I'm foolish to think I'm going to advance it around the globe. I can't fight and overcome my own sin. That makes too much noise in me. Listen, I need to fight in here so I can fight in here and I can fight out there. Because we live in a battle. This life is a war. John Piper says life is war. Most people do not believe this in their hearts. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There's austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on on new tires at home. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. The luxury liner becomes a troop carrier. Very few people think that we are in a war greater than World War II and greater than any unimaginable nuclear World War III. Or that Satan is a much worse enemy than communism or militant Islam. Or that the conflict is not restricted to one global theater, but is in every town and city in the world. Or that the casualties do not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but lose everything, even their own soul, and enter a hell of everlasting torment. Until people believe this, listen, they will not pray as they ought. They will not even know what prayer is. The first thing I want us to do when we close in prayers is for us to take up the mantle of realizing Life is war. And you and I enter into that arena of war through prayer. We began that passage in Ephesians chapter 6. It talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities and forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Things in the unseen realm that you and I don't see with these eyes. But in the spirit, we know they're there. Therefore, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And there's all the pieces of armor. And the concluding element of that armor is that we're to take it up in prayer. Prayer is the means by which we take up the armor of God. Prayer is the means by which we engage our enemy. So what we want to see us do is is to see God revive our hearts in prayer, to go to the battle in prayer, to create space in our lives, to once again realize, "I I need to get with God. I need to pray. I need to take up issues. I need to hear from God. 
I need to fight. I need to lay hold of things in the spirit. I need to believe God. So what we're doing here from now until we move into the building is we, we want every day to know that there are people in the body here who are praying, who are taking up the cause of God, who are standing before God, who are taking hold of the promises of God, who are fighting through difficulties to lay hold of God's purpose in our midst. So I hope everybody had a chance to sign up if you didn't get the, the sign-up list to come to you. And, and, you know, obviously we're not looking for you to just pray one time. You want to, you know, every... Monday morning or every Wednesday night you sign up every one of those spaces or maybe there's multiple places that you have a burden from God to be praying we don't want to have a day missing where there aren't people praying and fasting and calling on God because there there is a purpose listen we're standing it's almost as though we're standing on this Jordan River to cross over into a land let's not be surprised let's not be caught off guard and when we get into the land there will be enemies there there will be opposition. Seeing people come into the kingdom, I don't think we'll ever see a more difficult thing than that. And seeing a reviving work of God where God saves many, many in this city and throughout this metro area, that's going to be challenged. There will be much, much opposition to that. Fight to lay hold of it, church. Fight to lay hold of it. Let's get some fight in us. And let's stand up together. thank you for how your word informs us. Lord, we we need to take this, sit down, visit with you, find connection points, receive conviction, open our thoughts to kingdom truths and not just natural earthly views. I thank you for some here, Lord, just the reminder in the midst of things not being easy. Lord, thank you for an explanation for that. Lord, thank you. Thank you that as I venture into parenting or a relationship or something you've called me to do, God, thank you for reminding me today. When I go to take hold of that, the enemies in the land will rise up against me. They will do that. Lord, give us a sense of fight in our hearts. God, give us a sense of clinging to you. God, give us a sense of your nearness so that we have great confidence in you. God, our hope and our confidence and our trust is in you. Lord, whether it's iron chariots that we have to face or whether it's our own laziness. God, whatever the enemy would be, God, give us grace to be with you in such a way that we are a confident people. God, that we will take up the fight and we will lay hold of your promises. And God, I pray that's going to be true here as you rally us to a new season, a new day in this church. God, a new place for us to walk with greater power and effect and influence, seeing people come out of darkness into light, seeing believers with the shackles falling off their lives, seeing the glory of the Lord sweep through the earth, proclaiming your excellence through our lives. Lord, we want to see a greater day than we've ever seen in the midst of this church. God, we want to see an awakening in our homes. God, we have faced opposition 
in the church. We have faced opposition in our homes. God, there are some here facing opposition in their very bodies. Lord, would you give us a sense of fighting the fight of faith, fighting the fight of faith and taking hold of promises that you have made for us. God, we don't want to get to the end of this journey through this life with unclaimed promises littering the shelves of our lives while we worried and feared, dwelled in sin. God, change the course of our lives. We want to lay hold of your promises and we want to fight for your glory in our midst. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.